Let's pray. Father God, we turn to you and turn to your word now, asking that you would speak to us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the great joy that we have sung about the good news of what you've done for us in sending your son to us. And now as we consider what it means to draw near to you, we consider things like fasting and this great wedding feast and this new wine that you've described in your word, we ask that you would give us understanding, that you would draw us to put our faith and hope in Jesus and him alone. And he would show us that only true life and satisfaction is in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I got married to my beautiful wife, uh, there was a season of anticipation. Does anyone remember that? When just before you were getting married, you had this season of anticipation. You sort of look out the window and just time would pass very quickly. You'd be imagining what life would be like when you're married. There'd be a lot of nervousness, of course. And as the day grew closer and closer, the anticipation lifted. So excited that I was going to marry my wife. And on the day itself, when we got married in a beautiful pine forest, you can just picture it, the green of the pine forest and the pine nettles spread across the ground. Everything was set up beautifully. There was acoustic music playing in the background, preparing for the bride to come. And as, the, as the, we were preparing for the bride to come, my heart was beating quite fast in my chest. I was making sort of, you know, polite, somewhat comical conversation, but inside I was nervous because that's what you like. You're full of anticipation that she's going to be here soon. There's this sense of longing that this is the great day. And it's this strange feeling, right? Because there's great joy at the same time as this somber tone, this sobriety that this is real and it's here and yet I'm full of joy and so excited about it. And then all of that just fades away as she arrives she gets out of the car and she walks down the aisle and all eyes are fixed on her as they look and then finally that moment is here and everything else is forgotten because you're finally in the presence of the one you love. Doesn't that sound good? Who wants to get married who's not married here? Don't put your hand up, that'd be embarrassing. But it is it's such an exciting time before you get married. Now, Jesus uses this really interesting metaphor today. He's actually talking about fasting. But then he uses this metaphor of this bride and the bridegroom. And the, and the wedding guests who are around the bridegroom, and they're not mourning. They don't have a sense of anticipation anymore because they're with him. And Jesus is talking specifically about the spiritual discipline of fasting. And he is saying that fasting is something we do when we're waiting for someone to come, when we're longing for them to be with us. But when they're with us, everything else fades away. And the joy and that total sobriety, that sense of fullness of life is present with you in the moment. That is what Jesus is talking about as he comes to teach us about fasting. So I'm going to tell you three things about fasting today and about drawing near to God. The first thing I'm going to tell you is about the methods that we practice when we fast. The second is the faith required. And the third is the Spirit who enables us. So firstly, the methods that are practiced. So if you open up in your Bible, if you've got it in front of you, hopefully you did when the reading was out, but if you don't, feel free to open it up now. And we, we 
you can use your app too. That's totally fine, or a paper Bible. In verse 14, we see that John's disciples come to Jesus, speaking on behalf of themselves and the Pharisees, and they say, why aren't you guys fasting? The Pharisees are fasting, and these are the spiritual elite in the society. And even John's disciples, John's in prison at this point, but even his disciples, trying to remain faithful, are also fasting. That is not eating food, anticipating that the Messiah would come. Everyone's fasting, but Jesus' disciples, they're not fasting. The criticism upon the followers of Jesus is leveled at them directly. You're not as spiritual as we are, because we practice something which cultures all around the world know is a sign of devotion. That is fasting, going without food for a time to increase your devotion to God. Of course, this begs the question, what is fasting? What is fasting? Well, there's a few different ways that fasting is practiced. Primarily, it's in two ways. Firstly, there's corporate fasting. We see this number of times in the Bible. Uh, we see this uh, in times in the Old Testament uh, when God's people would be waiting uh, for an answer, like in Ezra, where they were making their way from exile in Babylon back to the promised land, back to Israel, and they were afraid that an army was going to come and capture and kill them. And so they declared a fast and everyone prayed. They didn't eat and they prayed. They drew near to God asking Him for protection. There's a number of different examples throughout the Old Testament. People having this time of devotion of not eating so that God would protect them. That is, that He would draw near to them and be close and be their mighty defender as they know the Bible promises. There's another example of uh, fasting in the Bible. And this is actually the one place in the Bible where it's actually prescribed for God's people. This is in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur when God's people were instructed that as they prepared to make the sacrifice uh, of the Day of Atonement when one goat's blood would be spilled for the sins of the people and another goat would become the scapegoat. This is where the word comes from. The other goat would be sent out of the camp carrying the sins of the people outside of the presence of God and His people. They would fast in preparation. They would not eat food so that they might devote themselves to God. And so we learn two things from this. Firstly, fasting is for specific answers to prayer. Fasting, as my dad used to tell me, is when you need an answer from God and you haven't got it yet. And so sometimes you need to turn to Him and draw near to Him so that you may obtain that answer. And other times in the Bible, it is for a sense of contrition or repentance for the sin that you have, a way of preparing your heart before God like the Day of Atonement. Now, these are the corporate ways that God's people are called to fast. Of course, this comes at an interesting time because we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, but we are also in August, which is our month of prayer and fasting. As many of the people in this church have been taking one day per week not to eat in order to draw near to God and to petition Him for four big prayers. So we are doing the very thing that I'm speaking about today. But there's two other personal reasons. So they're the corporate reasons, the reasons that the people of God throughout the Bible and history have done consistently. 
But there's two other personal reasons that we might fast, and John Piper gives these for us. Firstly, he says we are putting our stomach where our heart is to give added intensity and expressiveness to our ache for Jesus. Don't you love that? Our stomach where our heart is. We fast to express our longing or our ache for all the implications of Jesus' power in the present moment that isn't completely realized. We want to see people healed. Yes, we do. We want to see people saved. Yes, we do. We want to see marriages redeemed. Yes, we do. We ache and we long for this to happen. Therefore, we ask Jesus to come by putting this exclamation point of longing at the end of our desires. He words it well. Secondly, but it also is a negative way of exposing latent idolatries. When I'm not being medicated by food, what comes out of my heart? Anger, lust, the need for television, more and more of it. People need to know what is at the bottom. So there's two purposes to fasting. One is corporately for the people of God as a way of repentance, a way of turning back to Him and preparing our hearts to receive the forgiveness of sin. This is in the Old Testament in particular, under the covenant law. And also at times of crisis, at times when you realize that things are dire and you need a response when there's a big issue and you need a response from God. So that's the purpose. But what's the method? Well, I've said that it's not eating, and I think most people are familiar with fasting. It's actually in vogue at the moment. You might be familiar with Dr. Michael Mosley. My family is. We tend to love him, and we talk about intermittent fasting a lot and the eight-hour window. Fasting is a big thing right now, and you can read up about all the health benefits from it. But fasting in the Bible is not about the health benefits. It's about the spiritual reality of Jesus as the King of the world and the Savior who is to come. So biblical fasting is not about a health plan. It's not about a Daniel diet. It is about drawing near to God. But in what way are we supposed to do it? The Bible tells us, in fact, Jesus teaches just early in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to do it secretly. We're to comb our hair. We're to dress ourselves up as we normally would so that no one else would know that we are fasting, if it is indeed a personal fast. Because the only person who needs to know about your devotion to God is who? God. Otherwise, who else is it for? For others. Jesus calls this out because the Pharisees, the Pharisees were doing it and they were messing up their hair and tearing their clothes a bit so that everyone would know that person's fasting. And so they'd look up to them for their spirituality when in actual fact, the person who does that is just doing it to be seen by others and not for drawing near to God, which is the very purpose that they're supposed to have. A friend of mine likes to tell me that fasting without prayer is just dieting. So if you want to fast without prayer, go to Dr. Michael Mosley. But if you want to fast, then you need to be praying. Because what is it but withdrawing food from our body if it is not to speak to God, to know Jesus, to draw near to Him, that when we go without physical food, we come for this true spiritual food. We realize that nothing else in this world will satisfy us. And we realize that only Jesus will, and so we come to Him. 
without the luxuries of life. We intentionally withdraw the luxuries of life, the most basic necessities to eat. And we say, Jesus, I need you more than bread. Jesus, I need you more than my daily food. That is the true essence of fasting. But of course, Jesus uh, does explain the concept of fasting. The people who knew what it was like, knew the purpose and plan behind it. And we in our modern culture, except primarily for health reasons, don't really practice fasting that much. You might be going in for surgery. You know you need to fast, and no one likes that. But doing it for spiritual reasons... Well, that's a little bit different. That's something that we're probably not that familiar with in our culture. So I want to just give you a few tips, something, some things that I practice when it comes to fasting. The first is to be, uh, to be a person who plans to fast. That is, if you're going to fast, if you want to draw near to God, then you plan it out. I find it helpful to do it on a work day because it keeps me going and busy. It means that I'm not just thinking about the white elephant. If I said to you, don't think about a white elephant, what comes to mind? A white elephant. If I say to you, don't think about eating food when you're hungry, what are you going to think about? Food. And so I plan my day that it's on a work day when I will fast. And I set aside time throughout that day to meditate on specific scriptures like John chapter 6, when Jesus talks about himself being the bread of life and him being the true food. And so as I meditate on that, I'm thinking about and praying about the very thing that I'm aiming to do. That is, be satisfied in Jesus more than the things of this life. Because I realize that every good and perfect gift comes from him. Planning. That's really important when it comes to fasting. It shows that you're taking it seriously. Also, preparation. That means eating well the day before so that you won't be lethargic all that night. That means not drinking too much caffeine because you tend to get a little bit jittery if you just have caffeine all the time and you're not eating any food. There's a couple of tips that I tend to practice when it comes to fasting. One, thing, one more thing I'll tell you on that is that in addition to planning and preparation, uh, when you are thinking about fasting, don't just start with a seven-day fast. Right? Your doctor will probably tell you you're crazy if you go and tell them you're going to do that. Start with skipping one meal, maybe two, and just setting aside that time for turning towards Jesus. A 24-hour fast, as it turns out, is actually more difficult. That is, skipping three meals throughout a day is actually more difficult than fasting for a few more days because your body gets used to it. So be prepared for that if you're thinking about fasting. I also encourage you what the uh, Jews used to practice and what many people have practiced is uh, dinner time to dinner time. So that is, you might have dinner the day before you fast, then you might skip breakfast, lunch, and then after that 24-hour period is gone, then have dinner the day after. Now, it doesn't need to be a strict rule like that, because remember, why are we fasting? What's the purpose behind it? To draw near to God, so that you may know Him, and you may experience His love for you and satisfying true spiritual food. Don't get too caught up in the details, but don't forget, if you want to do it well, you need to plan, you need to prepare. That's fasting. There's a really interesting occasion in the Bible uh, when there's a, there's a fast that happens. Actually, in the, in the New Testament, uh, it's in the book of Acts. And it tells us one thing that God does, particularly as His people gather to fast. As in 
Acts chapter 13, one of my favorite prayer meetings in the Bible, verses 1 to 4. And we see that as the, t- the church in Antioch were gathering for prayer and fasting, that the Holy Spirit said, set aside for me two people, Paul and Barnabas, to the work that I've called them. That is, as God's people, as the church in this particular city are gathering to pray, they're seeking to draw near to God, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and sets two people aside to go out and to start planting churches and advance the gospel of Jesus. And so one thing that you will find is when you start to fast and pray as a church, people start to be raised up and sent out. And of course, Tom and Jazz are a good example of that who we just interviewed before. But if you want to become a praying and fasting person, get ready. Because God may well tap you on the shoulder and send you out for his mission. A great example of this is um, a pastor from Adelaide. His name is Andrew Evans. He used to be the pastor of what was then called Paradise Community Church. Now, when Pastor Andrew Evans came to Paradise Community Church, it was the largest AOG church in the country with how many people would you guess were there? Anyone got a guess for me? 5,000. Lower. Try under 1,000. Anyone? Rob? How many? 400? 4,000. No, no, under 1,000. Under 1,000. How many people were there when Pastor Andrew Evans got there? Come on, somebody. 280 is very close. Yes, thank you, Steve. I think Steve might have heard me tell this story before. It was actually 200, but you were very close. There was 200 people there and it was the largest AOG church in the country. This is a long time ago. And when he arrived, he began, he was a, one of the most competent preachers. It was the biggest church uh, of that denomination in the country. He was a good preacher. He'd been serving overseas, I think in Papua New Guinea. And then he'd come back to Australia with a calling from God to share the good news about Jesus Christ with the people in that region of Adelaide. Now what happened? The church declined by 25%. That's really encouraging for a pastor when you start a new ministry and 50 people just get up and leave in your first year. And so he decided, well, I'm going to try my best. I'm going I'm to get an evangelist out from the US, a big evangelist. He's going to preach up a storm and all these people are going to get converted. You know what didn't work? So he said, we're going to start up this door-knocking ministry. We're going to knock the doors of everyone in the neighborhood and tell them about Jesus and invite them to church and run this amazing program. And you know what? didn't work. He even tried to hire an evangelist. And the evangelist came and said, I don't want to work here. Again, very encouraging for a pastor, you can just imagine. And so eventually, he was so fed up and all feeling almost defeated, he didn't know what to do. And then this guy came to him who had marriage problems. And he didn't know what to do for the guy with marriage problems either. He's like, if I can't sort out the church, how can I sort out someone's marriage problems? And so I said to this guy, just come to the church building and we're just going to pray. We're going to fast and pray because I know the Bible says that that's what you do when there's a crisis. And so they began to fast and pray every Saturday for three months. Anyway, God did a work in this guy's marriage. And then one Sunday morning... Andrew Evans was in the church service and he felt that God was saying, if you can do this for one person, why can't you do it for my church? And so he began to fast and pray for the church. Him and this guy, because they were in a pattern of doing it. Every Saturday, they would fast and pray for the church. And of course, as the Pentecost, the, the 
tend to pace as they pray back and forth. That's not necessarily a practice you need to take up, but I do, I do like the enthusiasm of it. So they're praying and fasting, and then they feel like, still, nothing's happening. But there's an anticipation building. There's this excitement in their heart that God might actually do something. And then one Sunday morning, again, he gets this sense that God wants to do something during that meeting. He gets this sense that the presence of God is here today in a special way and that he wants to call people forward to commit their lives to Jesus in repentance and faith. But it wasn't the usual time in the service. It wasn't during the announcements when people normally get up. It wasn't even during the sermon he was supposed to do it. It was like during the first song, just after the first song. They hadn't even got to the exciting part in the service yet because you know, the songs tend to build up. Although we started with the most exciting song first at City Reach Marion, so we're kind of trying to mess with you a little bit in the order. But in that service, they tend to build them up towards the, the middle. Anyway, he felt he needed to get up, and so he did. And he said, look, I don't normally do this, but I think that we need to turn back to Jesus. I, I think people need to commit their lives to God again. You know what happened? Half the church came forward. Half the church came forward in tears. Of this, so 75 of this 150 people came forward in tears to give their lives totally to Jesus. And you know what happened gradually over the next few years? This church became the largest in Australia by far. In the 1990s, it grew to about 5,000 members. It was for a long time the largest church in Australia. But God moved through a season of prayer and fasting. This brings us to back to what Jesus is telling us about fasting because Jesus cottons on that he's being criticized through his disciples and says, well, our disciples, my disciples don't need to fast. And what's the example that he gives? What's the example that he gives in the text? He talks about a wedding. And he says that you only look forward to the wedding when you're not there. But once the wedding comes, once the groom is there, you're not looking forward to it anymore. You're not fasting in anticipation of it. You're focused on him. Why? Because he is present with you. Now, Jesus is saying some very important things here when he's talking about fasting. He's saying that fasting is when I am not in my bodily presence with you. And Jesus is saying that he is God that he is the Messiah that they are expecting, God's people are expecting his king to come and rule and reign over his people. As if Jesus is saying that I am the Messiah, I am God. If you want to draw near, come into my presence. They don't need to fast while I'm here. Jesus even goes further and says the old way of doing things has now got to change. He says you can't put a piece of unshrunk cloth onto old clothing. Why? Because those who are familiar with fabric will know it will just tear away and the clothing is ruined. Jesus says that you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because the fermentation process is still happening with new wine and if you close it up, it'll burst because the skin is not elastic and it will not grow with the wine. What is Jesus telling us? That the old way of waiting for the Messiah is over because he's here. The Messiah has come. The wedding day has arrived. The disciples are around the groom. 
And so they are filled not with mourning, but joy and anticipation of his great work amongst them. There is, of course, a dark side to fasting. Verses 16 and 17 pointed out that there's a worse tear or the spilled wine and destroyed skins will make everything worse if we continue to try and fit the new way into the old way. What is Jesus talking about? There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 where there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Remember, the Pharisees are the ones that are criticizing Jesus for not, and his disciples for not fasting. And Jesus tells this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector, and it's this moment where they're in the temple. You imagine like a church. And the Pharisee is up the front of the service, and he's praying. And he's so glad with his own life. He's got his hands raised, and he's saying, God, I'm so glad I'm not like those other sinners. God, I'm so glad that I do all these good things for you, that he fasts twice a week. Mondays and Thursdays, like every good, pious Pharisee should. I'm so glad that I'm not like that tax collector down the back. Because he's not good enough for you, but I'm at the front and I'm definitely good enough for you. Now you can, you can read in this parable that clearly the Pharisee has got it all wrong. He's packed full of self-righteousness. He's a fasting person, mind you, and yet what does it do? Nothing good for him. Because he's saying that his trust is in his spiritual works. For how much of a religious man he is, rather than depending on God. And then the parable shifts to the tax collector. And the tax collector is at the back. He can't even lift his eyes to look up because he knows what he's really like. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. And so what does he do? He beats his chest. He beats his chest and says, Have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus pulls back and says, Which one of these person, persons went home justified? And Jesus says, The tax collector. Even though the tax collector doesn't fast. Even though the tax collector has nothing to bring to God. You see, the dark side of fasting, like many other spiritual practices, is that it can lead to great spiritual pride when you're saying, I don't actually need God because I'm good enough already. And yet their eyes are blinkered, cannot see that it's just self-righteousness. And yet Jesus is saying that the tax collector is the one who truly can see and know God because he comes to him with nothing. And so the dark side of fasting is that if your faith is in the methods, it makes you into a, can make you into a prideful person who you do it so that you look better than others. Or it can make you into a guilt-filled person because you keep trying but you can never make it. Do you feel guilty this morning because I'm talking about fasting? And you're, you may ne have never done it. You may not be good at it. You might have tried it and didn't work out for you. You might be trying really hard to be a good Christian person or a good religious person and it's not working for you at the moment. And so what are Jesus' words of hope for you today? 
that you don't need to try and be a Pharisee. Because Pharisees are not doing anything good for God. You just need to turn to Him with nothing in your hands. And say, Jesus, you are all I need. And that is an acceptable sacrifice to God when you turn to Him and Him alone. The grace of Jesus in this situation is when he's criticized and his followers are criticized for not fasting, Jesus says, something more important than fasting is here. Me. I'm the Messiah that everyone's fasting and mourning, waiting for. I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm God that everyone is trying to draw near to through fasting and I'm here now and you're missing it. And so pride and guilt are not things that Jesus wants to deal in. Jesus wants to make his grace come to bear upon you. Jesus talks, as he explains what's going on here with fasting and with this beautiful wedding feast, he's giving us this sense of a messianic expectation being fulfilled. God's people throughout the Old Testament, particularly when we get to the prophets, have been waiting that their king would come, that he would right every wrong, that he would make society good again, that he would fix the broken and hurting souls of his people and provide an eternal kingdom where they could be forever. Jesus is saying it's here and you can have a part in it too. Second thing I would talk about briefly is the faith required for drawing near to God. MacArthur explains it like this. He says, Jesus' new and internal gospel of forgiveness and cleansing cannot be attached to the old and external traditions of self-righteousness and ritual. Jesus talks about there needs to be a new wineskin and new wine to go in. That is, God's people need to become new. They need to stop waiting for Him to come and put their faith in the Messiah himself and so it tells us something really important that it is through faith in jesus when we're fasting is how we draw near to god it's not the act itself it's not how little food you have it's not your self-will it's what you're doing with it and if you're putting faith in jesus as the messiah who's already come who's already done the work for you then you will draw it near to god This also tells us something which is a little bit implicit in the text, but I want to draw it out for you because I think it's a very important point. I shared earlier that there's only one prescribed fast in the Bible. That's on the Day of Atonement. We actually sang about it earlier. We sang about the blood of the Lamb cleansing His people. Now, in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was about goats, actually, and one goat's blood will be spilled as an, as an act of cleansing for the people. That they would trust and that they would confess their sins each year to the priest. And the priest would then vicariously, that is, place his hand on the goat. And the goat would receive the due penalty for their sin. Its blood would be spilled and God would cover over their sin. He would remember it no more. But there was a second goat and that goat was all the sins were placed on that goat so that it would be removed from the presence of the people that goat would be sent out into the wilderness to die now this sounds very strange and unfamiliar for us but that was a very well-known practice that this the 
blood of the animals will be spilled on behalf of the people. So they themselves didn't have to die. That was the Old Testament practice, and a fasting was a way to prepare for that. But Jesus, by talking about fasting not needed while he's here, is saying that there is a new day of atonement coming. He's pointing to himself being the new day of atonement where his blood would be spilled, where he would become the sacrificial animal, this time represented by a lamb, that Jesus would become the sacrificial animal to take the sins of the people on their behalf. And that as Jesus would die, so would the power and the penalty for sin die with him for those who believe in him. So Jesus is saying that whoever believes in him, whoever has faith that he is the Messiah, that he is the bridegroom, that everyone's been waiting for, the Messiah King, that anyone who believes and has faith in him will receive this true cleansing. That what they've been fasting for for centuries beforehand will finally be made real for them. This tells us a couple of things. Firstly, it means that for us, our attitudes can change. When we realize that Jesus is the result and the meaning behind the fasting, when we realize that what Jesus has done for us is everything the Bible had been working towards beforehand, every time God's people got together and didn't eat was because they were waiting for Jesus to come. This tells us that when we remember what Jesus has done, it changes us on the inside. I talked about earlier that there's this sense when we're fasting that we can be filled with spiritual pride or spiritual guilt. Jesus deals with that. Jesus deals with that thing that creates these levels of people within the church. He says, by his work on our behalf, that you're actually much worse than you think you are. Bad enough that the Son of God would have to die for you. And so what that does is that means that there's no Pharisees and tax collectors. Everyone's on the same level. There's no partiality with God. And all people are on the same level with Him. And so that humbles us before Him. But it also gives us great confidence. Why? Because God was willing to do it for us. In great love, in great joy, the bridegroom was willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his people. When the show was supposed to be about him and his, he said, I'll do it for you. What this does is produces a deep confidence in the people of God. It also produces a deep an ongoing freshness to our faith. Because when we do things like fasting or prayer or these spiritual disciplines which are supposed to draw us near to God, we draw on what Jesus has done in a fresh and new way. We say that what Jesus did for me, that he became my sacrificial offering, that he died to take the power and the penalty for my sin, that he cleanses me by his blood and makes me a new person in his resurrection. That when he does that, and when I draw near to him through things like fasting, I'm drawing deep from that fresh well of salvation. I'm saying that's true for me today. I'm coming to him when I've got spiritual pride or spiritual guilt and saying, I need to be humbled and filled with confidence. And those things don't often go together, do they? Humble confidence. And yet in Jesus they do. 
Finally, I want to tell you how the Spirit enables us to draw near to God. In these verses, it says, that is in verse 15, it says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What's Jesus referring to? He's saying he's going to die. He's obviously going to rise from the dead too. Jesus will ascend into heaven, but he will not be with them in his bodily presence anymore. And so when we get to Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people, and they're filled with the presence of God, and they've been meeting in a prayer meeting, they've been drawing near to God, then these onlookers look at them and go, these guys are filled with new wine as if they're drunk. But I'm pretty sure Luke is making a bit of a play on words there because he's referring to the new wine that Jesus spoke about earlier. And Jesus is saying that my presence will be with you as you become new wineskins, as you believe in him, and you'll be filled with new wine, that is with the Holy Spirit. You'll be filled with this substance that will be uh, changing and growing and developing inside of you. As it's fermenting, it's getting better and better. And Jesus is saying here that this new wine will be him coming to be with his people. But then why would we fast? Why would we fast if the Holy Spirit has come to dwell with his people? Jesus is saying that they will fast when he's gone, but it won't be the same way. It won't be like the old way where they're waiting for the Messiah to come. It will be the new way in light of the Messiah having come. It'll be out of a new place in God's kingdom that whoever believes in him will be part of this eternal family of God's people. That they will be called sons and daughters of the living God. And so when God's people are fasting, they are believing. They're believing that Jesus has finally come. A good example of this is the idea of renewing a wedding vows. You're married and you want to renew your wedding vows. You actually go back to what you wrote however many years ago. And you get together, you have a ceremony and you say, I believe these things again. They're true for me today as they were 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And when we fast, we're essentially saying that we are renewing what Jesus has done for us. We're drawing deep on it again. We're saying that I need that more than I need my daily food. And so fasting is quite an important spiritual discipline. It's been discussed by many as one of the most neglected spiritual disciplines, mainly because we don't like missing out on food, I think. But it is very important, but we must get the reasons for it right. It must be about God himself. In fasting, we seek a spiritual food and drink, not a physical one. We're seeking that what Jesus has done once for all would be refreshed in us continually. And so if you want to be someone who draws, draws near to God, I encourage you to become a person who fasts. And of course, we have to take in our health issues and that kind of thing together. There are different types of fasts. You can give up different things as a way of drawing near to God, like technology or media or that kind of thing. I encourage you to do that. But get the reason right. Don't buy into the pride and the guilt that comes from being a spiritual superhero. There's only one of those, and that's Jesus.
I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the band to come up. Father, we thank you so much for what Jesus has done, for who he is. The fact that Jesus fasted so that we don't need to do that in order to overcome temptation, but rather we can turn to him. We thank you that you are the bridegroom. You are the one that the celebration is about, the joy that we're supposed to have is for. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would turn our hearts to you, to know you deeper, to love you as you first loved us. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.